We are in chapter 9 of Ezra, so go ahead and locate that if you would. The book of Ezra, chapter 9, we only have 10 chapters, so we're getting near the end of the book. Ezra's prayer. Ezra's prayer is in Ezra, chapter 9. When the Bible uh, addresses times of hardship and difficulty in a nation, especially as it relates to the nation of Israel, a biblical remedy is given for times like this, and interestingly enough, it is something that seems so uh, strange from what we would typically say uh, because the biblical solution to times like we live in right now is actually humility and prayer. And if you're an expert on society, on Western culture, on solutions, maybe you're a very solution-oriented person, that's a really good thing. That may seem very strange to you that the Bible would actually say that the remedy for what ails us is all about praying. What is prayer? Well, prayer is a communication with God. That's what prayer really is. It's, you can't know somebody unless there's communication and there's, there's a relationship. And prayer is an acknowledgement that there's a God in heaven who made us, that he hears and answers prayer, that he honors prayer. And in Jeremiah 33, 3, he says, Call to me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things that you do not know. See, just calling upon the Lord is where it starts. That's where your relationship with God starts. You know, you, each of us had a moment where we realized we needed God. Uh, some of you may not quite be there, but maybe you're close and you felt a tug, and maybe you got multiple invitations to church. I know when I was uh, first uh, introduced to the church, I felt like Christians were surrounding me. Everywhere I went, I was meeting Christians who were inviting me to church, and I was like, what's with these people? Um, I had a cousin who actually invited me to church. Uh, after a lady, I, I had done some work with her, and she invited me, and then a cousin invited me, and uh, I gave in a couple of times just to kind of see what was going on, and I had some, some upbringing in the things of God, so it wasn't completely foreign to me, but I think back to a time I was uh, a boy playing on a street with a group of friends. We would always play touch football on the street, and we would uh, enjoy just fun times in swimming pools at different guys' houses on this particular street where I grew up in Santa Ana. A lot, of, a lot of fun memories there. And I remember I walked into a house one day, and it was one of the new kids on the block, if I recall this correctly. It was a lot of years ago. But I remember walking into the house, and there was a lady there. She was the grandma of the young boy. And she had uh, Christian ministry playing. So she had a sermon playing on the radio. And I remember one of the little kids saying to the group, that's all she ever does is listen to sermons. And we all kind of in our punk way went, <laughs> And I, and I think back to those times and think, you know, that lady probably was looking at us going something like this. Oh, Lord, would you just save the whole host of this group of boys? And, you know, it's been said that nobody's ever entered into the kingdom without somebody praying for them. I don't know if that's true or not. Uh, the Lord can do whatever he wants, but... But I like to think that uh, he certainly does honor prayer for the lost, and uh, he honors prayer. 
There are three great prayers, all in chapter 9s in the Old Testament. They're called post-captivity prayers, what I mean by that. They follow or have some connection to the 70-year captivity God uh, sent upon Israel as a judgment upon his people. And so Babylon came in with the armies of Nebuchadnezzar. This is, you can document this in secular history. Uh, began the first uh, host of captives moving from Jerusalem or the area of Judah uh, to Babylon in 605 B.C. and then destroyed the temple in Jerusalem in 586 B.C. And uh, then there was a 70-year captivity that was prophesied in the books of Isaiah and Jeremiah, among others. In response to God's discipline of his people and the consequences that followed, these three great men pray three great prayers. They're in Daniel 9, Nehemiah 9, and Ezra 9. Three nines. Three great prayers. If you were to break down just the big theme of each of those prayers, each of those great men, think about their names, Daniel, dare to be a Daniel, Nehemiah, and Ezra. These are, these are power Old Testament guys. Each of their prayers would be defined as prayers of brokenness, humility, solidarity with their people. They don't say they sinned. They say we have sinned. Even though Daniel was an extremely godly man, Ezra was an extremely godly man, Nehemiah was a godly man, they show solidarity with their people. And their solution for the condition in which they find themselves is humility and prayer. And so this is the solution for the church. This is the solution for the country. This is the solution for any broken relationship that you have. You start praying for somebody, it's hard to stay mad at them. You start crying out to God and saying, Lord, search my heart. <laughs> I was listening to Frank Sontag today and he was having many different discussions, but he said, you know, I could be wrong. I have to repent multiple times a day. <laughs> and I was thinking, what an honest uh, way to put things. I've got to repent multiple times a day. What does that mean? i got to turn around and have my heart change. Sometimes I think the wrong thing and say the wrong thing. Look, we're all in the same boat. And if you can acknowledge that and be honest with yourself and even with others around you and just repent, which simply just means change your mind, change your heart, turn around, stop going that way, come towards God, you're going to be good. We have a biblical remedy before us for all that ails us in Ezra chapter 9. Ezra's name means the Lord is my help. Would you pray? Father, thank you for Ezra's prayer. Oh God, we need this so desperately tonight. We need prayer that leads to revival. I sense in your people a hunger. I sense the beauty in their worship. I see what's happening in our community and in our state and in our world. Oh God, how we need you. I pray whatever you want to teach us tonight from this profound prayer and these 15 verses. Oh God, have your way. Let us be good soil. Let us hear what the Spirit says to your church as you minister to your people. In Jesus' name, and if you agree, would you say, Amen. Each of these men had a burden as they pray. And scholars would say that the revival that you see recorded in Nehemiah 8, remember in the original Hebrew Bible, Ezra and Nehemiah are one book, 
is linked somewhere in these verses, like at the end of chapter 8, moving into chapter 9, is that great revival, and we've looked at that in a recent message. Let's look at verse 1, Ezra's prayer. Now, when these things had been completed, and we have some things at the end of chapter 8, let me just show you a few highlights. As they were traveling back, Ezra led a second group of returnees to the Holy Land, back to Israel, namely Jerusalem, He called for a fast in verse 23. It says, So we fasted and sought our God concerning this matter, that is the travel, which would be very dangerous, and he listened to our entreaty. I called for a fast last Wednesday night, and some of you decided to fast, and I think that's a really positive thing that you did. And even if you fasted one meal, uh, some of us have been talking about maybe we need to fast from social media. That might be a really good cleansing thing in your life. How many of you need to fast from your phone? How many of you can't even imagine for a moment? Because when you leave the house without that phone, you doing a U-turn and going back and getting that thing. Some of you start to get the little quivers when, where is it? Where is it? I got to stroke it just to make sure it's the only one who really understands me. Ooh, goodness. Could you fast for your phone, from your phone, for one day? Some of you are like, yeah, got no problem with that. Got a flip phone. (laughs) I feel you. I feel you. So they fasted, and God honored their fast. He listened. Let's go down to uh, 31. Then we journeyed from the river Ahava, where the fast was called for, on the 12th of the first month to go to Jerusalem. So that was the destination. And the hand of God, Ezra 8.31, of our God was over us. Beautiful picture of God's protection. And he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and the ambushes by the way. Thus we came to Jerusalem and remained there three days. I just want to show you the faithfulness of God. Uh, We need to be praying that God's hand is protecting his church right now. Amen? We need to pray that we're making good, godly decisions to minister to people who need hope. See, the church is beyond essential. The church is God's single organism to bring the truth to a society and to the church. The church is the pillar and support of the truth. 1 Timothy 3.15. How vital is that? How important is that? I know that the natural man doesn't understand those things. But this is what we hold. This is what we guard. This is what we convey. This is how we encourage one another. And so they returned. There's some uh, offerings and stuff done in the end of chapter 8, leading us to chapter 9. Now when these things had been completed, Ezra's writing now in the first person, the princes approached me, 9-1, saying, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands according to their abominations or their practices, which God considered abominable. Those of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. Now, these people groups 
are familiar names to any Bible student. And many of these names are those who inhabited the land of Canaan. The land of Canaan is the promised land. It was named that as Abraham sojourned to the land, and then it would become known as the land of Israel. But these people groups were in the land, and God, when he was getting ready to give the people of God the land, and this goes all the way back now to the Exodus, and uh, they should have gone right into the promised land, but they sinned and they wandered in the wilderness those 40 years and so forth. They were given multiple warnings. And here's, even after a captivity of discipline and judgment, the report comes to Ezra that they have returned to the land and they have taken some of their daughters of those people groups in verse 1 as wives for themselves and for their sons. So that the holy race, that word race there is zera in Hebrew, Z-E-R-A. The New King James has it as seed. This is not speaking of a racial situation here as it, as it uh, might be concluded from the word. But here it's best rendered seed. And it namely has to do with the seed of Abraham and the nation of Israel. Let me just explain for a moment so that you understand what's being said here. Israel as a nation began with Abraham, moved on to Isaac, and then to Jacob. Jacob then was renamed by God into Israel. And he had 12 sons, and those 12 sons became the 12... Uh, why is it escaping me? Thank you. The 12 tribes of Israel. And so that nation inherited the promised land. And this seed from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would lead down through the tribe of Judah to the Messiah. One of the reasons that that seed had to be protected was for the purposes of the coming Messiah, who would be the lion of the tribe of Judah. And so the Israelites had something else important. They were the keepers of the word of God or the law of God and the covenants. If you want more on this, you can read Romans chapter 9, especially in verse, verses 1 through 5. They were entrusted with the oracles of God. If you've done any research on manuscript evidence or the keeping of the Bible, the Hebrew Bible, the Jewish people were so meticulous about copying Scripture that they had these rules and regulations about counting the words and the precision with which they copied Scripture, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. So God was doing multiple things with this nation. He was entrusting them with the oracles of God, or the Word of God, namely the Law of Moses in the Old Testament. The bloodline was to stay pure to the leading of the Messiah. And there was something else. As they intermingled with the people groups of the nations round about them, the issue wasn't so much that there was a different ethnicity marrying a, another ethnicity. The issue was the influence of the spiritual practices of those people. It wasn't a cross-cultural thing in the sense of racism. It was the sense of if you marry that person and you are, this is an Old Testament way of saying the New Testament uh, idea of unequally yoked, then they will influence you probably to go after other religious practices and other gods. This is what happened, by the way, to Solomon. Solomon married many foreign women. 
This is 1 Kings, I think it's chapter 11. And even though Solomon was the wisest man that ever lived, except for Jesus himself, he prayed for wisdom. He was wise. People came from all over the world to listen to his wisdom. He didn't listen to his own wisdom. And he married many foreign women, and those women sadly, tragically, turned his heart away from the Lord. And he went and built high places to appease his wives. And his end was, in many ways, sad. Somebody said, if you survey biblical characters and watch how many of them started well and ended poorly, there is a very uh, staggering number of biblical heroes that ended poorly. They didn't heed the warnings of God. And that's why this is such a big deal. Because this is a big part of the reason why God judged them in the first place. Not for intermingling with other ethnic groups. But for defying God because God had warned them. These people practice other religions and they will lead you into idolatry. They will lead you away from me and... In, and to play the harlot with idols. And notice, the peoples of the lands, they intermingled with them, end of two. The hands of the princes and the rulers had been foremost in this unfaithfulness. In other words, the leaders were some of the main culprits of not obeying God's word. And you know, it's interesting to think about the history of Israel because it kind of was like this. The nation through periods of time, would be defined by the rulers of the nation. So if the king did right in the sight of the Lord, the nation was usually blessed. And typically, if you've been reading through your Old Testament, you'll find that a good king knocked down the false places of worship. He got rid of the idolatry in the land, and bad kings raised up the false places of worship and honored other gods and goddesses and led Israel astray, and the stories are uh, numerous. So the leaders were at the center of it all, and they got themselves in trouble. I want to show you a few verses. Go to Exodus 34. Hold your place in Ezra, Exodus 34, to take a look at the warnings that were given. The book of Exodus, now we're going all the way back to the time of Moses. Exodus 34, look at verse 10. I'm going to show you just a couple of these warning passages so you can get a flavor for how they were told way ahead of time about this. God said, Exodus 34, 10. Behold, I'm going to make a covenant before all your people, 34, 10 of Exodus. I will perform miracles which have not been produced in all the earth, nor among any of the nations and all the people among whom you live will see the working of the Lord, for it is a fearful thing that I'm going to perform with you. Be sure to observe what I'm commanding you this day. Behold, I'm going to drive out the Amorite before you, the Canaanite, the Hittite, some of these same people groups we see in Ezra, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Watch yourself that you make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land into which you are going, that promised land, lest it become a snare in your midst, but rather you are to tear down their altars, smash their sacred pillars, and cut down their ashram. For you shall not worship any other god, for the Lord, 14, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land and play the harlot 
with their gods and sacrifice to their gods. And someone invite you to eat of his sacrifice. And you take some of his daughters for your sons. And his daughters play the harlot with their gods. That is, you have them marry uh, these other people groups. And this is what happens. And cause your sons also to play the harlot with their gods. You shall make for yourself no molten gods. Over to Deuteronomy, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy chapter 7. Let's go over there as we just survey a little bit of the warnings that God had given. Deuteronomy chapter 7. And let me just explain something to you about Israel going to the promised land under the leadership of Joshua. Israel, this is something important to understand when you're talking to people who read passages in Joshua and they're like, oh, that's brutal. They went in and they wiped out all these people. Israel became a uh, tool of judgment by God to those nations. There's a section in Genesis 15 that says, the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. And sometimes we read that and we're like, what? Way back in Genesis, when God's making a promise to Abraham. What does that mean? That means that God was waiting for the Amorite sin, that people group, to build up to such a point that finally he would judge them. The iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. Now that would be confusing unless you understand that Israel became God's tool of judgment on those nations who were involved in abominable practices, including child sacrifice. And it went on for many, many years, and God waited and waited, and Israel became his tool of judgment on those nations. That's why when they go into a city and it's so brutal, you're like, how could God tell them to do that? Because finally, God said, their sin has come up to my nostrils, and enough is enough, and I'm going to judge them, and Israel will be my tool. Flip it around for a second. Babylon, a pagan nation with a pagan king, became God's tool to discipline his own people. See, this is how God did things. He would use armies, whether it was Israel's armies or a foreign nation's armies, and mete out judgment. And believe me, it was after a long time of great patience because God showed great patience with Israel, didn't he? He waited and waited and warned and warned and waited and waited and finally he said, I'm calling Nebuchadnezzar and Nebuchadnezzar is going to deal out my retribution. This is important to understand, just thinking about your theology and your understanding of the judgment of God and some of those passages that you're like, man, they wiped out women and children and you're like, ouch, what's going on there? It's because finally God said, my judgment is coming, they will not repent. Now there was a nation that was warned, Nineveh, capital of Assyria, and they turned around 40 days and judgment's coming and they repented. And what happened? God relented. God delights in loving kindness and mercy. But if a nation won't repent at some point, God will say no more. And we know we've been reading about in Thessalonians about a day of the Lord that's coming, a day of judgment. Now Deuteronomy 7 is the next passage we're looking at. When the Lord your God one, Deuteronomy 7, 1, shall bring you into the land where you are entering to possess it and shall clear away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, seven nations greater and stronger than you. When the Lord, Lord your God shall deliver them before you and you shall defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them 
and show no favor to them. This is judgment now. Furthermore, three, you shall not intermarry with them, so you shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons. Here's why. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. And they're told to knock down the false places of worship. And then 6 says, you're a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And then finally, Deuteronomy 18, so just a few pages to your right. Here's another warning passage with some specifics about the practices that they are not to imitate of those nations in the land of Canaan. 18.9 of Deuteronomy, it says, When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, you shall not learn to imitate the detestable things of those nations. That word detestable is toba. In Hebrew, it means that which is disgusting, Deuteronomy 18.9, abhorrent. It speaks of an idol. The ESV has it as what is abominable. You shall not imitate the abominable things or practices of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone, ten, who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire, one who uses divination, one who practices witchcraft or who interprets omens or a sorcerer, one who casts a spell or a medium or a spiritus or who calls up the dead. For whoever does these things is detestable to the Lord. And because of these detestable things, the Lord your God will drive them out before you. That's why I'm booting them out of the land. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. Those nations, 14, which you shall dispossess, listen to those who practice witchcraft and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do so. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, and that ultimately speaks of Messiah, from your countrymen, you shall listen to him. Back to Ezra, chapter 9. Now, the people of Israel have experienced a captivity of 70 years. Ezra has led a second group of returnees back, about 2,000 people. Ezra most likely was born in captivity, so that's probably all he knew. If he had known the promised land, it, was, it would have only been as a little boy, because remember the captivity is 70 years. So he likely was born in captivity, or maybe could have been a little kid. But let's just assume that he was born in captivity. So all he knows is Persia and paganism, surrounded by paganism. But he's been studying the law of God and preparing himself. And he's heard stories about the glory days of the promised land, but all he's known is captivity, and he knows why it happened, because he knows the Bible really well, right? And he knows the passages I just showed you. He knows why what happened happened. Why the discipline of God? Why the 70-year judgment? All of that. He goes back to the promised land. He's there for a matter of a couple of months. And what is he told? That his people are doing the exact same thing again that got them tr in trouble in the first place. And if you're Ezra and you just got back home and you hear this, what are you thinking now? Oh, no. No, 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 no. This is what got us in captivity. Maybe God will just destroy us now. Maybe Ezra said something like this. 
you've got to be kidding me. We just got the temple rebuilt. We just got back to the promised land. And we're already up to our old tricks? What's it going to take? 170 years of captivity? How many spankings do you need, child? Can I get a witness? Some of you identify with the strong-willed child. Toe in the line. Well, you can see Ezra's in like a panic mode, man. He's like, no way. When I heard Ezra 9.3 about this matter, I tore my garment. That's a sign of grief. And my robe. And notice, I pulled some of the hair from my head and my beard. Oh my goodness, this dude's upset. Now, if you're a man in the room or you're a man watching, pulling out hair from your beard is about one of the worst things in terms of just like pain. You know how they, they've shown uh, those guys that get the, uh, they put the stuff on their back and they pull the hair off? You know how they scream like little girls? Well, your beard, your face is even more sensitive. And if they pull your beard out, or if you pull your, have you ever had a hair hanging and you tried to just a twink? <laughs> That's even painful, even when you know it's coming. Ezra did it to himself. Some of you are thinking back to a scripture. It's a prophecy about the Messiah in Isaiah 50, verses 6 and 7. It says, I gave my back to those who strike me, my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. For the Lord God helps me, therefore I am not disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. If you watch the Passion of the Christ movie, they showed a scene Jim Caviezel playing Jesus where the beard gets plucked out. And that's not recorded in the New Testament, but it is a prophecy about uh, something that they would do to the Messiah. Ezra did it to himself. And, you know, some of us have had days where we would describe it as I was pulling my hair out. And some of you don't have any hair to pull out. So, but you might have beard hair to... <laughs> I won't look at anybody in the room right now, but anyway... But here's the deal. It's an expression of grief and pain. I pulled some of the hair from my beard, my head and my beard, and I sat down appalled, dumbfounded, overcome. You ever had one of those days? One of those weeks? One of those months? <laughs> you just sit down and you're just like dumbfounded, man. I know this resonates with a lot of you because right now, if you watch enough news and you read enough opinions on things that are going on, you, you don't know what to do with yourself. Some of it just makes you want to scream. Some of it you just throw up your hands. It feels like sometimes we're like in this no-win situation, and I would describe it almost like a flood of one thing after another after another, not to mention the tension and hostility among people about the opinions and about the things that are going on. It gets stirred up more and more and more. And it's in the church. It's outside the church. It's everywhere. Ezra pulled his hair out. 
sat down appalled. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel on account of the unfaithfulness of the exiles gathered to me. And I sat appalled until the evening offering. One thing I put in my notes is I'm so glad that I don't have to sit alone. You know what I'm saying? Ezra could have sat alone, but I'm glad that verse 4 says that other people who trembled at the word of God gathered to me. I want to say a word, and, I, and I'm going to say it not to people who have uh, concerns about their health, underlying health conditions, those who are a little bit older. Uh, I'm not talking to you right now. But statistics are showing that 40 to 60% of the body of Christ has returned to church when the doors opened, and about 40 to 60% of church has not returned. And um, it's kind of an interesting thing to think about. And there can be many reasons, and I'm not here to judge anybody, but here's something I just want to put out for your consideration. And I said this to our group that was praying before the service. I don't think that you or I or very many of us realize the power of showing up. Let, let me explain. And, and this is part of what the world doesn't understand about the church. The church is a body. See, when, when Paul paints this picture and uses a metaphor for what the church is like, he uses a, a human body. And the eye can't say to the foot, I'm paraphrasing, I don't need you. The hand can't say to the nose, I don't need you. See, we're, we're different parts, but we are one body. And I know that there are reasons. There are people that are shut in. There are people that are going through different situations in life. I'm not talking about the exceptions to the rule. I'm not talking about other demands on your time. I'm talking about primarily here gathering like on a Sunday morning. And I'm not talking about people who have underlying health conditions and are concerned about their health for the virus. Because we would tell you to stay home. If you're feeling sick, stay home. I've said that over and over again. Here's, I'm saying, take this positively. When we're not together, there's a gap. See, there's a hole. There's an empty seat. I don't think that a lot of us realize the power of our presence. And let me say something else. I was reading an article by another uh, leader today, and he was talking about sacred space. And we don't live in first century Jerusalem. We don't go to a temple to worship. We can worship God anywhere. But there is such a thing as sacred space. Let me explain. This building has been set apart for the work of God. The word of God gets preached from this pulpit. We baptize people inside this church. We take the Lord's Supper. We pray for people, etc. It's not about the building, but there is something to the building as well. Do you know what I'm saying? And, and it's been defined as sacred space. And it's sacred because the Lord... It, when his people gather, we all come in and we're all filled with the Holy Spirit. We're all endowed by the Spirit. And when we come together, there is something special. Did you sense it in the worship? Have you been sensing it as the people of God gather? I tell you, it, it's something, I don't know if I can even put words to it. 
And I just, it just struck me, and you take this for what it's worth, and, and you, you have to just wrestle with it yourself, but when Ezra says, I sat down, and then everyone who trembled at the words of God, the God of Israel, gathered to me, there's just power in that. Let me just say, from a bigger standpoint, let's just put aside the, the church's regathering for a second. Let's just talk about standing together. Do you think that we need to stand together right now? So let me just say to you that if there was ever a time for the church to unite around the essential things, put aside just if, if the Holy Spirit is not talking through me about the other peripheral stuff, let's just talk about the big picture stuff. What I'm saying is we must be united around the things of God. We are his body. We are his people. We've been called out of the world, called to Christ, but also called to one another. And how can we do the one another commands if we're not around one another? Now, I realize we've had an interesting season and we're doing the best we can to navigate it. And we're going to give each other grace, grace, and more grace on that. But I'm just saying this. Oh, my when, Lord willing, the virus is gone, I sure hope that we understand the value of what God has created in the church. Okay? That's what I'm saying. And so, the people who trembled at God's word gathered to Ezra. God says this in Isaiah 66, my hand, verse 2, made all things. Thus, these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. Isaiah 66, verse 2. But at the evening offering, 5, I arose from my humiliation. If you have an ESV, it says from my fasting. Uh, I'm not sure which is correct, but either way it works. Even with my garment and my robe torn, and I fell on my knees and stretched out my hands to the Lord my God. Ezra falling on his knees and stretching out his hands to God is a beautiful and powerful picture of humility and crying out to God in repentance. You ever done that? Ever fallen on your knees and stretched out your hands to God and just cried out to him and you weren't worried about who thought what about you? One time I was, uh, we were looking for property as a church, this was many years ago, and I was on a fairly busy street and I had pulled my car over and I just said, Lord, I'm just going to pray over this piece of property and just see if, if this is you. And I felt like the Lord said to me, get on your knees. And I was like, Lord, <laughs> this, there's traffic going by. Really? I mean, can I just pray standing up? Can I pray for my car? <laughs> can I pray incognito? And I just felt strongly like the Lord said, get down on your knees and ask me. And then I thought, well, what am I worried about? People driving by from the church seeing me praying. Hey, there's Pastor Michael praying! Well, isn't that pretty much what pastors should be doing anyway? 
And I thought, maybe if somebody from the gym sees me, they'll think I'm a, a freak. <laughs> but I haven't been hiding that I'm a Jesus freak from anybody, even at the gym. <laughs> so, so what's my problem again? Look at Ezra, man. He just fell. His robe is torn, beard is plucked, hair is plucked. Garments torn, falls on his knees, stretches out his hands and begins to cry because he's not worried about what people think. He's worried about whether or not God is pleased with a nation that he just allowed to go back to the promised land and whether or not they're going to survive and whether or not he'll get to experience the temple that he trained for his whole life. Oh God, help us. We don't want to go back and experience your judgment in another captivity? No, that's all I've known. Please no. I don't care what they think of me. And I said, oh my God, I'm ashamed and embarrassed to lift up my face to thee, my God. Our iniquities have risen above our heads. Our guilt has grown even to the heavens. Would you notice in the great prayer, it's our iniquities, it's our guilt. He doesn't say, it's those people, it's those whiners over there, it's those people over there that just don't get it. If we want a solution to what ails us, have you noticed that most of the biblical passages, God does not focus on the world? Who's he focus on? His own people. He says, first you've got to clean up your house. If you want things to change, but we've got corruption here, how do we expect it to change there if we can't even get it together here? Now, this is a grace place, amen? We all, we all celebrate grace every day. But here would be the modern equivalent of what they did. There are clear commands in the Bible. They're not hard to figure out. And whatever the world is saying about those actions, your job as a Christian is to obey the word of God. In fact, to tremble at it. Not to excuse your unbiblical behavior because the world says it's okay. And the world has foisted it upon us. It's everywhere. I don't even know how many genders there are anymore. I've lost count. And we can go down the list. There's a lot of things that the church needs to clean up. Amen? And they're relational things, and they're how we look at each other and how we treat one another. We could talk a lot about a lot of different topics. But Ezra says, oh God, I'm ashamed. I don't even want to look up to heaven. And Ezra's a godly man because he shows solidarity with his people. What do you mean, Pastor Michael? Ezra's saying, I'm going to own it. Because I'm responsible, because I'm a leader of this nation. Even though it's not my sin, it doesn't really matter. We've sinned against you, God. Oh, please forgive us. Ezra realized that, one writer says, immediately in front of him are all the cumulative iniquities which have heaped up through history. This writer says, what an extraordinary view of sin Ezra gets right here. He sees it. It's right in front of him. He's like, oh, no. No, no, no. 
J. Vernon McGee. It's easy to divorce yourself from the church. The church is in a bad state. I'll grant you that. But my friend, it's not their sin, it's our sin. If the church is in apostasy, my friend, then we are in apostasy. Not my brother, not my sister, but it's in me, oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. It can't be them anymore. It can't be it's their fault anymore. Maybe I have to start looking at myself and saying, oh God, where am I falling short? I'm not, I'm not talking about false guilt and false blame here. You understand what I'm saying about solidarity? We're one body. If one part of the body's hurting, we all hurt. If one part of the body's rejoicing, we all rejoice. Since the days of our fathers now, he's praying, to this day we've been in great guilt on account of our iniquities. iniquities. We, our kings, our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, that's what just happened, to plunder, to open shame, as it is to this day. But now, for a brief moment, you can feel Ezra's emotion. Grace has been shown from the Lord our God to leave us an escaped remnant, to give us a peg in his holy place that our God may enlighten our eyes. Literally, our God make our eyes to shine and grant us a little reviving in our bondage. We've been given a space of grace. Oh, help us not to blow it. Help us not to blow it. Oh, Lord, revive us. A peg is a figure of speech that speaks of permanence and prominence. This is the language of nomadic life, and it refers to a place reached after a long journey where a tent may be pitched it may have certain legal overtones. The idea here is we finally got the temple back up. We finally got a place to call home. To be revived means to recover life or vigor, to return to consciousness. It refers to that which has life, but that life ebbs almost down to death. It has no vitality and is revived again. When someone gets revived, you can think of someone who passes out, their heart stops, and they get revived. That's what revival is. Revival is in the church. It's the church waking up from its slumber, almost dead, but made alive again. Amen? It's the prodigal. He was dead, and he is alive again. It's Jesus saying to the churches in Revelation, wake up, so that the things that you have in your life don't die. For we are slaves, nine. Yet in our bondage, our God has not forsaken us. Would you note in verse nine, Ezra says we are slaves because even though they're back in the land, who's the dominant ruling nation? Persia. They're not free. They still have to answer to the Persian kings because they're simply a, uh, another place where Persia has dominance. So they're not free. Please hear what I'm about to say. Freedom is one of the most precious commodities you can ever have. Now I'm going to comment on America for a second. I don't think we understand how precious freedom is. You see, freedom means you can decide for yourself what you're going to do, where you're going to work, where you're going to go, where you're going to vacation, 
how you're going to do it. That's what freedom is. Freedom is the ability to make your own choices, to chart your own destiny. And if you lose your freedom, someone else starts making those calls. Israel experienced that. Would to God that we don't give it up. Yet in our bondage, our God has not forsaken us, but has extended loving kindness to us in the sight of the kings of Persia. God even worked in the heart of Cyrus in the first chapter we saw that. To give us reviving, to raise up the house of our God, to restore its ruins, he gives all the glory to God. To give us a wall or an enclosure. The wall is not built yet, but probably a metaphor here. In Judah and Jerusalem, he's protected us. He's brought us home. And now... Our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken thy commandments, which thou hast commanded by thy servants, the prophets, saying, the land which you are entering to possess is an unclean land. Now back to some of those verses. He's going to just kind of, uh, in his prayer, quote the essence of, the, of several verses. The land which you are entering to possess is an unclean land with the uncleanness of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations which have filled it from end to end and with their impurity. So now, do not give up your daughters. Give your daughters to their sons, nor take your, their daughters to your sons. Never seek their peace or their prosperity. He's just quoting the essence of those warning passages. That you may be strong and eat the good things of the land and leave it as an inheritance to your sons forever. It's an informed prayer based upon Old Testament passages that we studied. And the Bible should inform your prayers. Amen? The Bible should inform your prayers. You should pray according to God's word. Because if you do, you know you're going to get the petition that you asked. Amen? You pray God's will, you're going to get it. And Ezra is quoting the essence of those verses. Because he was a man who knew God's word. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and our great guilt, since thou, our God, has requited us, Less than our iniquities deserve. You haven't get, given us what we deserve. And it's given us an escaped remnant as this. Just write down Psalm 103, 8 through 13. Here's the essence of it. If you, O Lord, kept the record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? If you were to pay us back what we deserve, who could stand? Nobody could stand. Shall we again break thy commandments 14, and intermarry with the peoples who commit these abominations? Wouldst thou not be angry with us to the point of destruction until there is no remnant nor anyone, any who escape? Would this spell the nation's final demise? The answer is no, because God is faithful. And God wasn't going to give up on them. O Lord God of Israel, thou art righteous, for we have not been left an escaped remnant as it is this day. Behold, we are before thee in our guilt. No one can stand before thee because of this. Now, you want to talk about an honest prayer? Woo-wee! That's it. It's a good one to consider in the days in which we live, amen? And it's a good one to think about now applying to us because right now maybe a lot of you have been passive participants sitting in the stands. Ezra... Israel back in the day. Uh-uh-uh. <laughs> See, we got something to learn from this, right? 
to cry out to our God. And I'll tell you this, and I, I don't want to get into the verses in chapter 10. Let me just say to you that the next chapter, they put action to the prayer, and it's very painful because what they end up doing is divorcing their foreign wives and dispossessing their children to get back right with God. Now, we need to be very careful in our understanding of this passage because, remember, this is specific to Israel, specific to the time, the covenant, and so forth. <clears throat> we have verses about marriage and stuff in the New Testament that we've got to make sure that we understand clearly. But the bigger principle is this, and Jesus said it, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Sometimes... Breaking, truly breaking with your sin is painful. Amen? It hurts. It costs because you didn't realize how much your sin cost you until you're in it and chained by it. And then you're like, oh my goodness, this is like, this has become part of me. It's painful to cut this off. It's painful to get rid of this. It hurts. But it's what they created. And in order to get back right with God, they decided to make a break. And I just want to leave you with a positive note. I said I wouldn't read a verse in chapter 10, but let me just give you uh, verse 2. They admit 10-2 that they've been unfaithful. And they say, end of verse 2, yet now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Even though we've done this, there's hope for us. Why? Because our hope is where? In Jesus. Jesus Christ is our hope. The loving kindness of God is our hope. And that loving kindness came and was expressed about 400 years, 500 years later in the person of Jesus Christ who went to the cross and was nailed to it and bore our iniquities and took our sin and took the wrath of God for us and he is our hope. And he will never leave us or forsake us. And that's why we have hope today. See, at any time, whether personally or corporately, if you just say, oh Lord, blew it, sorry, I'm going to make it right. And then you back it up with your action. I'm going to actually deal with this. I'm not going to just pray about it. I'm actually going to deal with it. The Lord honors that. Amen? He honors repentance that actually is followed with action. Father, thank you for the group that's joined us tonight. Thank you for a wonderful chapter. It's a, definitely a hard-hitting chapter, but it's a very honest look at a man who decided to intercede for a nation that had gone, was going astray again. And he, he was so brokenhearted, he had to take it to you in prayer. This is a good model for us, Lord. We, we need to have your heart. And somebody... We were in a staff meeting and somebody said, you know, Ezra's heart reflects God's heart. God was broken over Israel's sin. Broken over what sin does to us. God's not trying to ruin our fun. He's just trying to keep us from destruction. Thank you for Ezra being a mediator, a, a, a man who represents someone who is willing to stand in the gap and say, oh Lord, would you forgive us? And then backed it up with action and there was reformation. There was revival and reformation. Change came. And it can come to us, to your church, Lord. 
And would you forgive us for sin in our camp? Would you forgive us for the ways that we have justified our sins before you? They, they have no excuse. We have no excuse, Lord. We are sorry for the things that we've allowed, the things that we've justified. And the nation that we love, America, is reeling. And that is no overstatement. We are reeling. But there is hope. Hope in Jesus. Hope for revival. Hope for reformation. Hope for change. Oh God, we cry out to you like Ezra of old. Would you forgive us of our sins? Would you cleanse us of our backsliding? Would you bring us back to you? Would you help us to take the actions necessary to make things right where we can, where we have the, the Bible driving us, help us to make the necessary changes to amend our ways so that we can shine for you in these days, Lord. Would you just sit before the Lord just for a moment? Just hear what the Spirit says to his church, to his bride. He loves you so much. He's not giving up on you. I know that this was a hard-hitting one, but he loves you. He knows your struggles. He knows your fears. Just give them to him, and he'll give you all the grace that you need. Thank you, Father, for being so merciful and good to us. I know I don't deserve it. I don't deserve your patience, your loving kindness, your grace. You've poured upon me day after day, month after month, year after year. You've been good. You've not dealt with me according to my sins. And I thank you for Jesus, a Savior who is willing to take, bear my sin and my iniquity at the cross. And if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior in these final moments, this is the time. There's no time like right now to get right. Repent of your sin. Ask Jesus to save you to be your King, your Lord, your Shepherd. He'll guide you. He'll forgive you right now. Cry out to him, Lord Jesus, come into my life. I, I've sinned. I'm sorry. I repent of it. I turn away from my sin. I'm going to make a break with it, and I'm coming back to you. Forgive me. Cleanse me. Give me a new start. Revive my life. Let me be usable for you. Lord, we cry to you in Jesus' holy name, and thank you for the hope we have in him. Amen.